Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day today. We thank you we can gather together in freedom to learn more about your word. And we thank, thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you've given us through Christ. We pray that as we look into your word today, you would give us clarity of thought. Help us to understand the text so we may understand what the Spirit is saying. Um, I pray for Bob and his health, and we thank you for him. We thank you for Ephesians, and we pray for that message as well. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would be worshiping you and honoring you today. And so we thank you for this glorious day, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am in Revelation 19. We left off a few weeks ago on a slide, so we're kind of in the middle of a, a presentation all about the description of Jesus Christ as he returns. And one of the reasons why we're laboring the description is because in Revelation chapter 6, I want everyone to remember there is the Antichrist comes in on a white horse. Well, Revelation chapter 19, Jesus, the true Christ, comes in on a white horse. So one of the things we did is we described why it is we can know that Jesus is the rider of the white horse in Revelation 19, and the Antichrist is the rider in Revelation 6. So if you remember, I gave you eight distinctions between Christ and Antichrist in the description in Revelation 19. So that was last time. That's where we left off. Now, I want you to see we had gone through this slide, and one of the reasons we know that the rider in Revelation 19 is Jesus Christ and that the Antichrist is, notice at the very bottom, this rider is described as the Word of God. So remember, the Word of God is obviously Jesus. It's a reference back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's why we know this is a reference to Jesus. Now, we went from there. Remember this phrase at the bottom in verse 13 in red, where it says that his robe was dipped in blood? And we said that there's two possibilities, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but one possibility is this is a reference to Jesus shed blood for the remission of his people's sins, but more than likely in context, because here Jesus is returning in judgment on his enemies. That's obviously part of his salvific plan, but he's judging his enemies, and therefore we said more than likely the robe dipped in blood is a reference to Isaiah 63, where this Messiah is depicted as coming and his garments are stained by the blood of his enemies. So I want to read that Isaiah 63. That's where we left off last time. So let me read it again, and then I'll make a few more comments. I actually want to pick up on a question that Christy had asked last time. We'll start there. So Isaiah 63, 1 through 4, this is what John is alluding to by saying that Jesus, the rider in Revelation 19, that his clothing was dipped in blood. Isaiah 63, 1 through 4. Now here's the question of the watchman on the wall. So there's a dialogue between a watchman on the wall in Jerusalem and he sees the Messiah coming at him. So here's the watchman. He says, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his peril, marching in the greatness of his strength? Now here's the reply. This is the Messiah's reply. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, by the way, stop there for a moment. I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but Isaiah 43, 25, that is Yahweh's way of disclosing himself. It's his self-disclosure. It is I, mighty to save. So this is God's self-disclosure, and so therefore it's a link to the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Well, he's God. Are you catching on there? 
Okay, so let's keep going. Verse 2, why is your apparel red? This is the question again coming from the watchman. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? Now, stop there. That is what I think is the link back to Revelation 19, where the rider on the white horse, Jesus, his robes are dipped in blood. I think that that's what it's alluding to, this very section. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? Now, here's the answer from the Messiah, verse 3. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. So that's the answer. Now, one of the questions that Christy asked last time was, wait a minute, she had been to Israel, and some of you had gone to Israel as well, and you know that the enemies of God, when they come against Jerusalem, more than likely it starts up in the Jezreel Valley to the north and northwest. And so she's saying, well, wait a minute, why is this view of this watchman in Isaiah 63 looking to the south towards Edom and not to the north? Are you with me? Well, the answer, I think, is because Isaiah 63 is depicting something that will literally occur, but it's very symbolic. In other words, the Edomites represent the enemies of God. They are the prototypical enemies of God. And I want to flush that out. How do we know that this is symbolic? Well, let me show you why. First of all, notice up in verse 1 the term Edom. Do you remember that that in Hebrew, Edom, really is a reference to red? Well, notice the question in verse 2. Why is your apparel red? So here Jesus, who has the blood of his enemies on him, comes from a place that's red, and his garments are stained red. So there's this play on words. Now remember, where do the Edomites come from? They come from the descendants of Esau. Esau hated his brother Jacob. And so because of that battle... The Edomites represent the prototypical enemies of God. The enemies of God par excellence. Now, let me give you some further information to prove that. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 25.30. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis 25.30. As you're turning there, the reason we want to turn there is this is where Esau sold his birthright for the bowl of beans, for the red soup. Okay, and so there's a play on that red. Again, Genesis 25.30. Genesis 25.30, notice it says, And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. It was called Red. That's his nickname. Esau sold his birthright for the red stuff, and so he gets this nickname Red. Now, why is it so significant that he sold his birthright? Well, the birthright would belong to the firstborn. In fact, the term birthright in Hebrew is bakorah, not the barakah, the blessing that Bob is teaching us about today in Ephesians, but the bakorah. Now, here's what's so significant about it. There was two things important about being the firstborn in the ancient Near East. Number one, you had the inheritance rights. In fact, in Deuteronomy 21, we see that those who were the firstborn were given a double portion of their, father, their father's inheritance. Now, in the case of Esau, what kind of inheritance would he have received? 
while it would have been the inheritance of Abraham and all that was attached to Abraham. So if Abraham was given the promises of God, then that inheritance would have belonged to Esau. And yet he thought so little of the inheritance that came from Yahweh, from Abraham, that he was willing to sell it for a bowl of red stuff. Do you see how bad that is? Do you know the second thing that the son would do who was the firstborn? In the ancient Near East, he would represent his family before God. They didn't have a church or a synagogue or a temple on every corner. So oftentimes in the nomadic culture, the firstborn son represented the family before their deity. Well, that was not only a right, but it was an obligation. And it's one that Esau, remember, who was the God of Abraham? It's Yahweh. And he thought so little of that obligation and that privilege of representing the family before God, he's willing to sell it for the bowl of red stuff? You know, oftentimes when I've caught myself in sin, that's a saying that always comes to my mind is, why am I selling my birthright for a bowl of beans, a bowl of lentil soup? Because at the end of the day, that's what all sin is. Sin has an appearance of goodness. It's sometimes even pleasurable at times. But at the end of it, it perishes, doesn't it? It's fleeting. And it's nothing more than just a bowl of beans compared to what we have in Christ. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but <laughs> um, the firstborn also, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think that also the firstborn in that culture had a responsibility, you know, because he would inherit more than yep. his younger siblings. He had a responsibility also to look after them, I think. Absolutely. I think that's true, isn't it? Absolutely. He and was Jesus, the one who was given the, the double Jesus is the firstborn, portion. see? Absolutely, yeah. yep. So yeah, and he was willing to forego all of those rights and obligations just for this red stuff. So that's this play on red. So the reason I'm mentioning this is I want you to see where this Edom comes from. The term in Hebrew, Edom, okay, it has a seg hole in it, eh? Everyone hear the eh? Well, red, notice on Isaiah 63... Edom means red, but notice the term red, where I have that in the box, that's Adom, with a, what's called a pathak. So you can see they sound almost identical, Edom and Adom. So the Hebrew picks that up for the assonance, it's the play on red. Okay, so that's the idea, and so that's why this is so highly symbolic. Now, the other passage I want you to turn to, just flip two chapters ahead, Be, being that Esau is willing to sell his birthright for the red stuff, He's given the nickname Red. Where does he settle? He settles in Edom, he and his descendants. And you know what? It looks red. <laughs> so Red, he, remember he had a red appearance. He was, remember that? He, so he's red. He lives in the red place. He sells his birthright for the red stuff. And so Jesus, the Messiah, is depicted as being stained with red. So that's why this is so symbolic. Now, Genesis twenty-seven forty-one. Please turn your Bibles there. I want you to see this hatred that ends up being perpetual between Esau and Jacob. Esau wants to murder him. Genesis 27, 41, it says, So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And from then on, there was always enmity between Esau and Jacob. And so that's why in Isaiah 63, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, 
are seen as the prototypical enemies of God. So I want you to understand that when I say that Isaiah 63 is highly symbolic, I'm not just reading into that because it fits our context. I think it is because of the context itself. Yes, it's a literal battle that will occur when Messiah comes and judges his enemies, but Isaiah 63 isn't trying to show you where it occurs. He's just trying to show you something about the might and the power of this Messiah. So I think that that's the answer. So thanks for that great question. I thought that was worthy of uh, further discussion. So anybody have any questions or comments on that? Okay, we'll keep rolling then. Now, we see here next that Christ is coming not just alone, but with his army. Remember, he's called Yahweh of hosts, the the Lord of armies in, in the Old Testament. So here, Revelation 19, 14 through 15, it says, And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now here's the purpose. So that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now, one of the things I think we have to wrestle with in this text is, who are the armies that come with Jesus? And we have two choices. It's either the saints or it's the angels, or you might even say it's both. And I think it's the latter. I think it's both. Now, let me make the case that it is, in fact, the saints. I want you to understand that part of the armies that come with Jesus Christ are the saints that are with him in heaven. So remember, I believe in the pre-trib rapture, that people will be raptured up. They're with the Lord for seven years while his indignation and wrath are poured out just as stated in Isaiah 26, then after that seven-year wrath period, the Messiah comes back and his saints come with him. Okay? Now, let's look at some evidence to say, yes, these are in fact the saints. Turn your Bibles back to Revelation 19.8. The reason I want you to turn back to 19.8, just six verses earlier, is because there you see a very similar description given, and it has to do with the people of God, believers. Notice Revelation 19.8. It says it was given to her, this is the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So does everyone see this reference to the fine linen? Let me pull up my pointer. In Revelation 19.8, we see the same description here. The fine linen, white and clean, or bright. Okay, does everyone see that? So there we, we see a reference obviously, to the church. Now, someone had Revelation 17, 14. I think that was um, Jerry or Jim. Um, so, Eric, right up here. Or I think that was Jim. So, everyone, turn your Bibles to Revelation 17, 14. I want you to see further confirmation that, indeed, this is a reference to the, the church. So, please turn your Bibles to Revelation 17, 14. Now, Jim, before you read this, here in Revelation 17, 14, it's talking about all the nations that have given their allegiance to the beast. That's the context. But read, you'll see a description to the saints as well. Um, victory for the Lamb. These will wage Oops, war. Oops, I'm sorry, Jim. Uh, talk right into the mic there, yeah. Uh, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Notice those who are with him. Those who are with him are the saints. And what are they? They're called, chosen, and faithful. So when the Messiah is depicted as smiting his enemies, he has an army with him. But what's very interesting 
is you and I are the laziest army on the planet. The reason why is we don't have to fight. He does it all. We just get to enjoy it, the, the benefits of the salvation that he brings. So we're kind of a lazy army, right? But nonetheless, we're with him. So um, one more passage, and it was right next to, I'm sorry, Eric, I should have, uh, it was Jerry, his wife. She has Revelation 2. So feel free if you want to turn to Revelation 2, 26 or 27. I just want you to see another reference that proves this is a reference to the church. This is the message that was given to Thyatira when Jesus was addressing the churches. So Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27. Wait a minute. We're working on it. That's all right. I've got one of those small, small Bibles, too. And, Jerry, don't worry. Oh, I, know I have cataracts, and it's hard for me. I know. I know. It's hard for me, and I don't have that. So okay. those little Bibles are tough. Okay, 26, 27. I think I have it here. Um, the things I have written unto you, covering them that seduce you but the coming which ye have received of them I, I can't see oh that's today. okay Jerry Somebody's don't worry you know what I'll, I'll read it here I've got it written out I'm sorry. no don't worry I put you on the spot so don't worry you, this is Revelation 2 26 or 27 and what I'm hoping is I put the right passage down but it says, um, is everybody there? It says, he who overcomes? Yeah. Okay, good. That's what I put in my notes. And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. Also, as also I have received authority from my Father. So notice this is given to the one who overcomes. Those who are overcomers through faith in Christ are going to, rule and reign with Christ. So that's another reason why we say, hey, you know what? The saints are in on this too. They're going to be with Christ in his rule and his reign. Yes. Um, uh, Blue Ann, yeah, sorry. Wow, the roll of decks was... I'm busy, ta- I'm busy talking The roll of decks was stuck there. I'm sorry, Lou Ann. <laughs> I just had a question on a word choice. Um, yeah. Because in my... this, I'm looking at the Holman. Yep. And it says he will shepherd them with an iron scepter. And now the, the context seems like rule is better. Because when I think of shepherd, I think of like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just curious why maybe they would choose the word shepherd. Yeah, I agree. There is a debate. Um, it can mean shepherd. The term literally means to shepherd. But what's interesting is it can mean rule in context. And I think it's better to see the idea of rule. The simple reason why is because it's a reference to both Isaiah 11 and also to Psalm 2, where the Messiah rules over his enemies with a rod of iron. Okay? But the reason I'm showing you all these cross-references is I want you to see that the saints are also with Christ in that rule. In fact, do you remember in 1 Corinthians 6? Do you remember when Paul is upset because the Corinthians couldn't even settle simple disputes among themselves? And yet they were bringing fellow believers to the courts of the pagans. And Paul says, look, you're going to judge angels. Don't you know that you're going to judge the nations? You're going to even judge angels? Can't you settle simple disputes among yourselves? So even in 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle Paul is saying, we as the saints are going to rule with Christ. 
And this perhaps is part of the reward that we're given. Uh, Steve Gretsch is going to be faithful, so he's going to rule over Argentina. I'm just giving an example. Maybe, maybe don't want Argentina. I don't know. <laughs> but the point is the saints will be rewarded and they'll be rule over the different nations. And so we'll, we will be ruling with Christ. So I just want you to see that the armies of Christ here in Revelation 19 really incorporate believers. But I also want you to see that the angels are depicted in Scripture as coming with Christ as well. So it's not exclusive either or, it's both and. In fact, let me have you turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 7. Now, as you turn to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7, you're going to see proof that indeed angels also come with Jesus at his return. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. I love this passage because it has to do with the great reversal. Notice he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Okay, stop there for just a moment. That term affliction is thalipsis. It's where we get our term tribulation. So notice God is going to put into tribulation the enemies of God who are putting us in tribulation. Okay, well, when does that happen? In the 70th week of Daniel. So in the 70th week of Daniel, you have a reversal. You and I may live during tribulation now, trials and tribulation. But when you get to the 70th week of Daniel, that's all reversed. And the tribulation comes upon the enemies of God, but the people of God are spared. So that's what's being referred to here. And so notice in verse 7, he says, And give relief to you who are afflicted, and to those of us, well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So when Jesus comes, he's going to be coming to bring retribution on his enemies, and it is indeed with his angels as well. Okay, so I think I've proven then that, yes, the armies, we don't have to choose between the saints and angels. It's both and. That's the armies. Okay, now, notice down in verse 15 in the red, do you see where it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword? so that with it he may strike down the nations. I want you to focus on that strike down for just a moment. Some scholars try to claim that when Jesus returns, that this can't be some sort of political or military battle. Now, one of the reasons they don't want it to be that is because they typically try to spiritualize these texts. They'll try to say, well, that's just Jesus' defeat of evil on the cross. But I want you to realize that that term, patasso, is used elsewhere, like in Revelation 11.6, for physical affliction. So the reason I'm focusing on that for just a moment is this striking down of these nations really is a military assault perpetrated by the Messiah upon his enemies. It really is physical. This isn't just spiritual. Jesus, the ultimate warrior... By the way, I know there's a pro wrestler called the ultimate warrior, so I hate to even use that term. <laughs> but realize the pro wrestler is taking his name from Christ, not the other way around, right? Jesus could take him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Rich. Yes, Jesus can take him, exactly. My money's always on the lamb. That's right. <laughs> the line of Judah, that's right. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. In this corner, <laughs> I just think, yeah, very good. My wheels are turning there. So that, well, that way we know, yes, this is going to be a physical battle. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice we're also, let me pull up my pointer just so it's clear. I, you know, you run out of underlines and boxes and stuff. Notice where it says, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
literally in the Greek, there's what's called an adjectival intensive. Now, don't, you know, bog down there. But autos is doubled up. And the reason why that's significant, it's redundant. Okay? Because in, in Greek, the verbs have the subject in it, he. So why does it almost has he, he. So the way we should render this literally would be, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's called an adjectival intensive. You see the same one in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, where it says the Lord himself will descend with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Well, I love that because it means there's no surrogate that Jesus is sending. This isn't some agent that's doing it on his behalf. He's doing it himself. Jesus himself. He's the one who's bringing the wrath. He's the one who's bringing the battle to the enemies. Wow. He's not having us do it. Again, I said we're the laziest army that there ever was. The battle plan is Jesus alone defeats all of his enemies. Yes, Eric. Oh, I'm sorry, Lonnie. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, I I, I see here that uh, my Bible, uh, New King James, uses himself. He himself will rule. Adjectival intensive. They got it. See, you know what I love? So, like, when Bob does his research in the Greek, what he'll do is he will say, you know what, that's the best translation. He'll put up that version. I do the same thing. So that's what we're trying to do. So that's why no one should think, well, this version's the best version or that version's the best version. In any given text, usually one version will have it better than another. Or sometimes maybe they're all the same. But my point is, is we want to just have the one that best renders the Greek. And that's a very good... So that was the New King James Version? Yeah. Yep, adjectival intensive. They, they saw that very clearly. And it's being accentuated the fact that Jesus does it alone. Very good, Lonnie. Thank you. I didn't even see that. In, um, I didn't look at the New King James Version to see how they rendered it. Very good. Okay, now notice in red here on verse 15, everything that you see spelled out is a reference to two passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah ruling over his enemies. Isaiah 11 in Psalm chapter 2. Okay, now let's look at Isaiah 11 first. I'm going to put up verse 4. But why is Isaiah 11 so important about the Messiah's rule? Well, if you're writing your notes, write Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. That's a pericope that should be studied together. And the reason why, it has to do with the work of the Messiah. Isaiah 11, 1, we know it's the Messiah because there's a reference to the fact that the Messiah is the shoot of Jesse. He's a shoot from the stem of Jesse. Well, the term shoot, shoresh, or excuse me, koter, the koter is shoot. It means he's an offspring from the human ancestry of David. But down in verse 10, the same Messiah is referred to not as the shoot that comes from Jesse, but the root of Jesse. So not only does he come from Jesse, koter, but he's also the source of Jesse or David, Shoresh. So in Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, you see that this Messiah is going to be not only a descendant of David, he is the source of David. Well, how can that be? Well, he's the God-man. He's a man, truly, because he comes from David, but he's also the originator of David. He's God. So this is why we know Isaiah 11 is certainly about the Messiah. Now, I say that because notice in Isaiah eleven four, it's certainly talking about him. It says, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Now, here's where you see this link to to Revelation 19. It says, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth 
and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the, the wicked. Now, notice that phrase, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This is a reference to the fact that he merely speaks and he can destroy his enemies. That's power. Just as Jesus spoke and the universe leapt into existence, he speaks now and he puts all of his enemies down. In fact, I want you to see a cross-reference in the New Testament to that. Again, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Please turn there because I want you to see this idea of the breath of his lips or the breath of his mouth destroying his enemies. That's real power. And that's where our hope should be. Our hope should not be in chariots or horses, right? In M1 Abrams or B1 bombers, as great as they are. And we should build them, by the way. Um, Let's make America great again, right? I'm, I'm all in favor of it. But ultimately, our hope is in the Messiah who can put all of the enemies down. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. This is about the Antichrist defeat. Notice how it's described, just as it is in Isaiah 11.4. Then that lawless one, that's the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with what? The breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Can you imagine, I want you to think for just a moment, the Joint Chiefs of Staff get together in Washington. And the question is, how are we going to defeat ISIS or whatever it is? And can you imagine if one of them says, I got an idea. Why don't we destroy them with the splendor of our coming? That's the battle plan? Well, they'd be laughed right out of there. Yet that's the power that Jesus Christ has. He destroys them with his words. And the splendor of his coming. That's the battle plan. That's how powerful the Lord Jesus is who died on the cross and was raised from the dead whom you serve. Yes, Brian. Um, We have uh, Jesus speaking the world into existence. And then also in Genesis we see where he breathed life into Adam, yes. and that there's that connection there. So he breathes life in, and he'll also take you out. <laughs> exactly. Well said. Very good connection. Absolutely. He gives the ruach, the spirit. He breathes, and he takes it away. Exactly right. And think about in John three, the spirit Jesus says is like the wind. You don't know where it's going. So what does the spirit do? He gives life, and he gives life to whom he wills. And he bypasses others. That's the doctrine of regeneration. So the same idea, that in the spiritual level, but you're absolutely right. The physical level is the same. God is completely powerful to heal, to save, and to also destroy. Absolutely. Yeah, Dan. I was just wondering, um, the word of God being the thing that will judge people in, in, when he comes back and how that relates to this verse. His, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Could that be him talking about the word of God and, and all these things? Have been, so no one should be surprised what happens to them. It's, it's in the word of God, and, and I'm wow. just wondering how that... Very you know, good connection, yeah. In fact, um, just a little story behind that. I was at Bethel Seminary for years uh, and my time there was very disheartening because I would always go into these classrooms that were run by postmoderns who couldn't know anything we can't know, we can't know, we can't know well Bob DeWay comes and does a message at Northwestern and he, what I loved about what he did is with a postmodern generation he just kicked down the door and said yes we can know 
And one of the passages he used to prove that was John 12, 48, where Jesus says, this is that which will judge you on the last day. The very words that I have spoken will be your judge. Well, what Bob was pointing out is, well, how can that be if, in fact, we can't understand what words are saying? Okay? And I think you're right. I, th I think here in the context, the word that's spoken is one in power in which his enemies are just slain physically. But the irony is when they're judged at the white throne judgment, remember there are books that are opened and their deeds are weighed, and they will be judged according to the word of Christ. They were given every opportunity to believe. They were without excuse. And the words that Christ have spoken are going to be that judge. So what I would say is it's part and parcel to the judgment, the word of God, but it just happens at a different stage. So it's being accentuated here, ironically, is the word just proceeding from Christ to wipe his enemies out physically at a battle. But then the irony is, you're right, they're going to be judged according to that word that they rejected at the white throne judgment. So again, words that proceeded from Christ. So very good connection. Yeah, Brian. You see overly exuberant churches today where they slay people in the spirit. Oh, that yeah. will be the true slain of the spirit <laughs> yes the slain by the messiah exactly right very good yeah right we don't have to try to conjure it up the, the, he's going to handle it very good point. Yeah. very good yes okay so now i mentioned isaiah um oh i'm sorry yeah eric Thanks. I, I was just thinking about, uh, not to switch topics too much, but I was just the splendor of his coming. You know, as, as for his enemies, it's like a dreadful, horrible thing. But as for us, what I've just been thinking about more recently is, you know, I always kind of fix my hope, you know, maybe on spiritual things, but a lot of times on like the blessings of serving God on this earth, like seeing the church united or understanding his love more. And I'm just starting to realize when it says set your hope fully on what is to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ, what that is going to look like in, in terms of why my hope is to be set on that and not on his goodness on earth, which we are to seek him and, you know, to go after his goodness on earth, to understand him, to know him, to build each other up, you know. But I'm starting to realize that every time I'm built up in God on this earth, you know, every time I understand a piece of him and I, and I long for more of that, it's like... I have this only this you know corrupt body that keeps <clears throat> I'm <clears throat> excuse me continually fighting you know not only my flesh but like Satan's continual temptations to go after other things you know to put put my job before God put my desires before God put all these things and it's like you know I hate those you know even good things like my job's great but it's like I'm constantly battling you know because Satan he'll put temptations like you know, your boss will tell you to do something that you know God doesn't want you to do, and then all of a sudden, even a good job, you're like, oh, you know, okay, God, I give it to you, and then it's good, and then we see that his grace is enough through that, but I'm starting to understand, you know, we, we taste of his goodness here in understanding him, but there, instead of fighting, you know, constantly fighting all this flesh and, and just seeing in part, like, we just understand little glimpses, that's why our hope is to be fully at, like, the splendor of his coming. So. Amen, amen. You know, Eric, um, what you're describing, I think, is really this battle between the fleeting pleasures of sin in this world and having the hope and the promises of God. And I think about that passage in Hebrews 11 where you look at the, it's often referred to as the hall of fame of faith, and you look at all the different saints throughout history, the writer of Hebrews uses them as examples of those who look for the promises of God. And in, in, in so doing, they're able to persevere. Moses took upon himself the sufferings with the people of God 
and the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the promises of God. And so that's, I think you're right. I think what we're to focus on are his promises. Now, that doesn't mean that working is bad, but there's also, we know that the toil in the garden, so to speak, now, or we're not in the garden anymore, it's going to be uh, thwarted by the thistles and the thorns. And so there's going to be trials and tribulations and troubles. And so the way that you and I can stay on the straight and narrow is by focusing on the promises of God. Absolutely. Focusing on that day. And that's why the means of grace, all of them, whether it's the word of God that we're reading today or the Lord's Supper, they all have to do with remembering what Christ has done and what he's going to do. So yes, focusing on the promises of God is the key to sanctification. The battle is this. If you don't believe the promises of God, you'll start living for what you can get here and now. This is all there is. As Remember Carl Sagan said, this is all there ever is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. That's what he said of the cosmos, right? That's my, my best Carl Sagan's impersonation I can do. Sadly, I can um, sound like Carl Sagan's. That's a sad thing. But um, So yeah, this isn't all there is, but that's how the unregenerate world lives because they don't believe in the promises of God. So, yeah, very good, very astute point. And this is one of those promises that we should focus on. Okay, so Isaiah 11 is certainly attached to Revelation 19. I also want you to see that Psalm 2 is the reign of the sun. We'll read Psalm 2, 7 through 9. Here, listen to what David wrote. And again, this is fulfilled in a preliminary way through David, the king, as he's installed on Mount Zion. But he was only a down payment because from him comes the Messiah, and obviously the Messiah is the originator of David, but for, from the Messiah, are all these promises are going to be fulfilled. So David says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. Let me stop there for just a moment. Um, what's interesting in the ancient Near East, we don't think of this the same way. We think of sonship or a daughtership as something that originates from birth. But in the ancient Near East, oftentimes it was associated with the ascent to the throne. Okay, so what I think is being described here is this idea of this ascension to the throne that David is given at Mount Zion. Okay, he is shown then and installed as the king. And so think about when Jesus is going to be enthroned in Mount Zion, this is the same thing is going to be fulfilled. So he says, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And notice verse 9, you will, or excuse me, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, as everyone see in red, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Again, that's a reference that was used there in Revelation 19. This is certainly being applied then to the Messiah. Now, notice this phrase also, where it says, you are my son in the underline. Remember, that happens in Jesus' earthly ministry in two very important places. Number one, his baptism. And secondly, occurs, as Bob was referring to last week, at the transfiguration. Okay? So at both the baptism and in the transfiguration, you have this affirmation from God the Father saying, this is my son. Now, in the transfiguration, what Bob was pointing out, this is a blending of Deuteronomy 18.15. Remember, that was the promise that from, Mo, or from Israel, God would raise up a prophet like Moses. Okay, so that was why in the transfiguration, God the Father said, listen to him. Because remember, Deuteronomy 18, those who don't listen to him, it's going to be required of them. 
Okay, but that, this idea that this is my beloved son is a blending of the Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, 1, the one in whom the Yahweh's soul delights. Okay, so why is there a blending? Well, in Psalm 2, the idea here is that this Messiah who is the son is going to rule over the world. Notice it says he's going to be given the nations as his inheritance. Now, the reason I'm laboring this point is Peter uses the transfiguration where God the Father says to the apostles, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. They put all the passages together that the Father is citing like Psalm 2, and they realize that's confirmation that the Messiah must return a second time. Why? Well, because if it's confirmed that the Messiah is going to reign over the nations... Jesus obviously wasn't doing that during his earthly ministry. Therefore, they reason he must have to come again. Okay? Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is I want you to see and turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And while you're turning there, um, listen to Bob. Well, I wanted to just make a correction. I was alluding to transfiguration. Yeah. And mentioned that one scholar thinks it was Mount Hermon. But I said it wrong. I want to correct myself because some people listen to these on the Internet. I said Hebron. I meant Hermon. And in the Matthew account, uh, Peter's confession happens at Caesarea Philippi. And that would be in the uh, area of Mount Hermon. So some have pointed out that the ancient Semitic peoples believed that the gods came down on Hermon. And for whatever that's worth, uh, what I was trying to say is that I can't prove this because it's not named here, but there's a possibility that this was showing this is the real god of the universe who comes down on Hermon. Amen, Bob. And I think it has a lot more going for it, the Mount Hermon view, because of the location next to Caesarea Philippi in close proximity. Right. So that's the evidence that's given. You can decide for yourself. Yeah. But it's definitely not Hebron. I had the wrong statement I made last week. I apologize. And I like to get things right, at least on tape. <laughs> well, we knew, yeah. <laughs> we knew you meant Hermon, so yeah, thank you. Very good. Um, I'm sorry. Was, oh, yeah, Lonnie, he had no, something. I just, just want to say that. I think oh, oh, I'm sorry, Christy. Um, hold on one second, Lonnie. I'm sorry. Sorry, I, did, I didn't want to interrupt where you were going, but yeah. as I'm reading um, verse 8 there, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as yeah. your possession. I think of Jesus' third temptation where Satan says to Jesus at um, on the very high mountain, um, he says, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And it just sort of wow. brought that to mind that, um, yeah. That's an astute reading. You know what that means? Free coffee, Christian. <laughs> yeah, you get water. Um, very good. So on a high mountain, he's tempted by Satan to have the nations as his inheritance. But at the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father says he will have the inheritance. So Jesus is temporarily 
saying no to Satan. I mean, he, he always does, but I'm just saying that's the offer. But Jesus waits, doesn't he? He waits for the Father's reward that will come. Absolutely great connection. Very good. Yeah, Lonnie. Yeah, um, I think I was reading, uh, I guess scholars say there's three possible mountains that the transfiguration occurred that have you heard yeah i know one of them is mount Tabor. yeah um and then i I don't know what the other one is the third option um to me mount herman is the most likely simply because of the location by caesarea philippi but also because as bob mentioned the significance in the book of enoch it's not canonical but oftentimes it was regarded historically at least by many jews there was this um the, the coming down of the watchers. Um, you had Baal worship. You had this idea that the gods came down. The false ones, the false ones would come down. So wouldn't it be fitting that the true God states about his son, this is my son. So it's kind of the way God is saying in your face, Satan. You brought down the Nephilim, as it were, here at Mount Hermon, yeah. but I'm installing the true son and all of that showdown at Mount Hermon. Now, remember Mount Hermon also, maybe what the reference is to in, in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere in the Old Testament, you see a phrase called Zaphon, not Zaphon, <laughs> but Zaphon, which means the area of the north. And what's interesting is, I don't know, if, when you guys were in Israel, those of you that were there, if you're in Israel on a very clear day in Jerusalem, if you look to the north, there's a blue hue, I don't know how else, is that a term, hue, a tint to the sky, because oftentimes Mount Hermon is snow-capped, and the visibility is so great that that actually tinges the color. So think about it. The, the enemies come from the north, and where does the enemies of God place their throne? On Mount Zaphon. Not Zaphon, but the places, the recesses of the north, which would be Mount Hermon. That's where Baal worship was centered. That's where the false gods came down. So it's very fitting for this showdown where God declares, no, this is the Son. This is the true Messiah, all at Mount Hermon. Zaphon, yeah, I think you're right. So I think so, so my point is, I think out of all the possibilities, Mount Hermon has the most going for it. Yep. So, okay, I'm sorry. Now, does everybody turn to Second Peter chapter 1? The reason I want you to see this is I want you to see that the transfiguration authenticates the apostolic interpretation of Scripture. Okay, now, the reason this is so important is because if you want to turn to one passage in all of the Bible that you can use to tell your postmodern neighbor that they're not entitled to their own interpretation, how many times have you had people say, well, that's just your interpretation? Well, if there's one passage you can turn to to refute that, it's 2 Peter 1. And I'm just picking up on this because it links to the transfiguration. Listen to how it does it. 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. Now, this is Peter speaking about the claim that the false teachers that he was dealing with in Asia Minor were claiming that the apostles interpreted the Bible wrong. That was the claim. That Jesus isn't coming back was the claim of the false teachers, and therefore you can live any way you want. So how is Peter going to say, no, we have the right interpretation and you're wrong? Jesus is coming back. Well, listen to how he does it. 2 Peter 1.16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now stop there for a moment. Notice the term coming. Does everyone see that term? That's the term parousia. It is a technical expression in the New Testament reserved for the second advent of Christ. In fact, so much so, the theological dictionary of the New Testament states 
that it's so reserved for the second coming of Christ, it could never be used for his first advent, lest the two be confused. Because the parousia was always deemed to be so imminent. Okay, so this is a reference then to the second coming of Christ. So what Peter's saying is we made known to you about the second coming of Christ. That's what he's referring to. That's what was being denied by the false teachers. Okay, so notice then we have a but. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, why is he saying we were eyewitnesses of his majesty? Because the eyewitness on the Mount of Transfiguration by the apostles authenticated they had the interpretation right. He says, verse 17, for when he received honor, that's Jesus, he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Now, this is what they heard on the mountain. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, notice he just simply leaves out, listen to him. Because Peter's point isn't to focus on the Deuteronomy 18 aspect, but the Psalm 2 aspect. Now, why is he focusing on the Psalm 2 aspect? Because notice in Psalm 2-7, the underline, you are my son, that's stated on the Mount of Transfiguration, but right after that, it says what? Verse 8, surely I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. So what Peter was saying is, look, we had it authenticated by God the Father that Jesus has to come back because he's the son who has the, the nations as his inheritance. That's the logic. So Peter's saying, on the Mount of Transfiguration, these words authenticated our interpretation that Jesus must come back. Verse 18, it says, and we are ourselves, this is the apostles, Peter, James, and John, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now notice the the inference, verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now stop there. It's not that the prophetic word is made more sure regarding its source, but rather its interpretation. What's at stake is not inspiration. What's at stake is interpretation. Okay, so keep following the issue. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns, this would be the messianic age, and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Stop there. Some of your versions will have, instead of interpretation, they'll say something like origination or inspiration. They'll use something like that. But I want to assure you that the issue, I think, is interpretation. Here's why. Just look ahead real quick in your Bible to 2 Peter 2.1. Just a few verses later. Notice in 2 Peter 2.1, I don't have it written out, but notice he says... Just as there were false prophets that rose up from among them, so there will be false teachers among you. The issue wasn't whether the the scripture was coming from a false source. The issue was about false teachers who were misinterpreting it. That was the issue that was at stake. How do we know whose interpretation is right? So that's the issue. No one has their right to their own interpretation. Now, notice why he grounds it or how he refutes it. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So if God is the author and on the Mount of Transfiguration, he is authenticating the proper interpretation to his apostles, who are these rascal false teachers to disagree God the Father is showing the apostles that, yes, Jesus must come again. False teachers are saying, no, you're misinterpreting the Bible. He's not coming again. 
Peter's saying, well, wait, God authenticated the message, and he's the author. So remember, who is it that defines the meaning of a text? Is it the reader or the author? It's the author. Um, I, I think about Steve Topshi back there. You're a lawyer, and I know he knows more about the Constitution than we'll ever know. But that's one of the battles in our era. What is the left doing with the Constitution? They say the reader defines the meaning of the text, not the original authors. So men like Scalia, men like, um, oh, my favorite, Clarence Thomas, he believes in authorial intent. So the Constitution means what it means. The same thing goes for our Bible. Peter's saying, look, if God is the author of this, and he authenticated the interpretation, which he did at the Mount of Transfiguration, who are you rascals to to disagree? You're not entitled to your own interpretation. So I want you to see these connections to Revelation 19, because at Revelation 19, the Messiah is coming back for his inheritance. We're seeing the realization of what was promised on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son, and the inheritance of the nations belong to him. That's all connected to Revelation 19. All of that is being fulfilled. The false teachers are forever being shown to be false teachers because Jesus did come back. That's what Revelation 19 is about. So these are the connections I want you to make. So keep that in your back pocket. Second Peter chapter 1, if you ever run into someone who says that's just your interpretation, that's the one you want to bring out on them. Okay, and, and yes, Bob. Just for a little preview, uh, in this sermon I have a slide about Christ and the Antichrist. And um, in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, there is a parousia, which is talking about the true Christ. Yeah. But before that happens, there's a parousia, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, of Antichrist. Yes, okay. yes. And then it talks about those who didn't receive the love of the truth. Yeah. So it gets even worse after the rapture. Yes. Because during those seven years... What they rejected about the true Christ will become, in, become a false version of it, incarnated in Antichrist with lying signs and wonders. And Antichrist is actually called a parousia. Wow. And he will be telling people the same lie that Satan told Eve in the garden. And he will do signs and wonders, oh. according to, I don't, know, I'll try, I don't have a ton of time during the sermon, so I hope this preview helps you. Yeah. Um, and so everything people wanted will show up. Oh. And they're going to think, oh, finally, finally, we can be like God. Mm. Finally, we'll have power, but we don't have to submit to the moral law of God. Finally, we don't have these Christians telling us what to do. We're going to have everything we want. Right, right. And that is all laid out in in biblical prophecy. Right. And the real parousia happens at the end when God saves Israel and brings this judgment that we're talking about. That's right. Okay. So if we are going to avoid the power of deception, which is very powerful and very seductive and very popular. According to Thessalonians, we have to decomai, welcome the the love of the truth. Amen. 
We must love the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And if we welcome the love of the truth, we'll resist all of this. Yeah, amen. But the people that don't eventually get everything they want. Right, right. And they'll finally solve the Jewish problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So they think. So they think. (laughs) Until Christ comes and saves a remnant at the very end. Right. And shows that God does keep his promises. Wow. So there's a little preview. I'm going to, I don't know how much time there'll be in the sermon, but it never hurts to have a preview. That's right. A little foretaste. Luke used them. Well, they even do on TV. I watched these shows where they debate politics. Yeah. And they have a little scroll line coming soon, uh, coming in this show. And then oh, the right. going to be on. Right, right. This one's going to be on. This one's going to be on. Yeah. Well, then I got to keep watching because I want to hear this one. Coming. <laughs> yeah, it's very effective. So maybe you want to go to church and hear the rest of it. Yeah, amen. That's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Very good. Um, you know, we'll just finish up here with verse 16. This is the last uh, part of the pericope. Now, the next section in Revelation 19 that we come to next week is where the enemies are actually gathered. Okay, and then we'll see the destruction of the false prophet also in the beast. So here's the last description of Jesus. He's the king of kings. Revelation 19:16. It says in his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I just want to make a very simple point. By the description, Jesus is being depicted as God. The reason I say that is because elsewhere in the Old Testament, the Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the God of Gods, etc. So let me give you a couple of examples. Deuteronomy ten seventeen. Here's the description of Yahweh. For Yahweh, remember, Lord all caps is Yahweh. That's his covenant name. Yahweh, your God, is the God of Gods and the Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. So if Yahweh is called that and Jesus is called that, who's Jesus? Well, he's God. That's another one we could use with Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, Psalm uh, 136, 2 through 3, give thanks to the God of gods for his loving kindness. There's his chassette, his grace and mercy is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his loving kindness. Again, chassette is everlasting. Dear ones, Jesus is God. And therefore, when he comes, he has the power of God. He has the power to judge his enemies with the power to save. One quick thing I want to leave on is I just want to show you where we are. This is the 70th week. Anytime I have this diagram, unless I note otherwise, it's referring to the last seven years. Let me pull up my pointer. This is the beginning of the last seven years. This is the midpoint, the three and a half years. This is the last part. So just think with me conceptually, we begin with a rapture. Rapture of the church, the people are spared the wrath of God. When does the wrath of God begin? It begins in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Therefore, the people of God can't be there. We're taken out. Just as it says, remember, all the way back in Isaiah 26, the people of God are taken home. They're put in a room while God's wrath runs its course. Well, at the midpoint, Israel's relatively safe. Why? There was a covenant that was made. But at the midpoint, the Antichrist breaks it. And what does he do? He sets himself up in the temple of God as God. And at that point, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, those who are in Judea are fleet to flee to the hills. Why? Because now Israel is going to be persecuted like it's never been persecuted. So this last three and a half years is synonymous with Jacob's great distress that you see written about in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. And unless those days be cut short, they wouldn't have even survived. But at the end of the 70th week, Jesus comes back with us. Notice the red arrow? 
He comes back with the saints. That's what we're reading about in Revelation 19. That's the battle because all the nations are gathered against Jerusalem, just as depicted in Zechariah 14, just as also is depicted here in Joel 3, 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the Kidron Valley. That's in Jerusalem. And by the way, why is it called Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat is Yahweh Shophet. Yahweh is judge. Because they miss Jesus, Jesus' names means Yahweh is salvation. Because they rejected that, they get Yahweh as judge. Either have Yahweh as salvation or you get Yahweh as judge at the end. He says, then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. So that's what you're seeing here. This is the last battle in Revelation 19 that was depicted in Joel 3, that's depicted in Zechariah 14. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you and I were grafted into those promises of Israel. This is our King Messiah as well, and it's our kingdom as well. So dear ones, Jesus Christ returning. (coughs) Yes, it's judgment and wrath on the enemies of God, but it's our salvation. That's what you and I got to (coughs) realize. As one scholar said, we know at the end God wins. That's the great news that we see here. Let's pray. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Eric, would you mind praying? (coughs) Sorry. Yep, yep. We can get choked up about this, and that's okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help each of us to learn from your word and to, to have faith in your word. You want us to be strong, Lord. You want us to be your children. We thank you that we are children of you, and we ask that you help us to proclaim your word to all the world in our, in our daily life and to, uh, to take consolation and hope from all of your promises. We thank you for our pastors. We thank you for each of us here. We ask that, that you give each of us a spiritual blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.